Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a requiem for the drivers we lost in the title battle and a massive homestead preview. It's that time of year. It all comes down to this. But first, as always, this is episode 43 of Positive Regression. This one is obvious. This is the Richard Petty edition of Positive Regression. The king, David. Seven titles, 200 wins. 200 wins, maybe the most untouchable record in all of sports. Uh, David, he's the king for a reason, but l- let's take an analytical approach maybe at him. What, what what do you see when you see King Richard Petty? I think you just hit it on the head when addressing your thoughts on the 200 wins, Mark. That's, that's the one, even as I grow older, even as I become more experienced in diving deep in data, that's the the part that I appreciate most. Richard Petty competed at the highest level we've ever seen for a long time, right? 200 victories is a lot. All but 24 of them took place between 1960 and 1971, or in other words, 176 wins in a 12-year span. We're never going to see that again, uh, right? Because we're just we're not going to run the the crazy sixty plus, nearly seventy race schedules that Richard Petty's uh, era ran. But look, even then, the nineteen sixty seven season, it was his age twenty nine season. He won twenty seven of forty eight starts. His peer for that year, Allen was 7.177, which just seems alien now. Like just seeing, seeing what, what we, what constitutes a good peer in 2019. The difference between guys often compared to Richard Petty, just in terms of, uh, winning percentage, consider Dale Earnhardt Sr. won 11.2% of his starts. Jeff Gordon's number was 11.5%. Hmm. Jimmy Johnson right now is 12.8%. Wow. Richard Petty won 16.9% wow. of the starts. Yeah. This is where my appreciation for him sits is he beat legitimate guys in that era. And the, the wins I think are true. I, 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 I don't. I don't know that this current generation of fans, they, they understand Richard Petty because like when you see Richard Petty, I mean, it's cowboy hat, sunglasses, crazy Jack Sparrow attire, and he is the living legend that you think he would be, but they don't comprehend that he was an incredible race car driver and he beat some of the best to ever do it. Where the Richard Petty line where it kind of gets a little muddy to me are the seven championships. And, and, and maybe it's because we live in the playoff era. Uh, we as a NASCAR fan base are quick to hang an asterisk on a, on a, on a championship that we don't feel is worthy. This might be, uh, his, his weak spot. He won championships in an era where competing full time for championships was not the norm. The average number of full-time teams competing when Jimmy Johnson won his seven titles was 28.6. When Dale Earnhardt won his seven titles, the average was 19.1. For Richard Petty, it was 4.6. Wow. He, he really only had to outlast four or five guys yeah. to win a Cup Series championship because that wasn't, that wasn't the thing. That wasn't what drivers and this was more of a regional circuit but they wanted the paydays they wanted the big events and that was the uh, the majority of the central focus for NASCAR then Richard Petty may have been the one to put winning championships on the map he perhaps made it more desirable to the generation of drivers that came after him but that is to me when when you're talking Petty and Earnhardt and Johnson, that's where he falls a little flat for me. Is that the championship battles that he had weren't weren't really real? And I, and, I, and I'll leave this with one more thought. Richard won his first championship in 1964. He was outpointed on a per race basis by two drivers. One was Jim Pascal, 
and the other was Billy Wade. And I'm going to guess our listeners probably haven't heard of them, but that's sort of the era of racing that Richard Petty was in is there were guys that were coming in cherry picking the tracks that they were good at. Um, and they could beat Richard Petty on their best day. Uh, that That's why I lean towards the wins, the longevity, um, just sensational stuff. And he was every bit as good as uh, people think. And, it, and it's the 200 wins number. I invariably think of Richard Petty, the king. And the first thing that comes to mind is 200 race victories. Absolutely. A lot of highlights. And what I still appreciate, what he's still doing for the sport. He's there every single week, David, 80 plus years old. And he's always there, always signing autographs and always one of the biggest attractions in the garage. It is still stunning, even for a, a weathered reporter to a weathered bitter reporter sometimes. Uh, to, but it is still stunning to see King Richard Petty in the, uh, in the garage and just in person in general, just his stature. It's really cool. And he set the tone for that. Alan, I mean, think, think what would have happened if. NASCAR was being dominated by one driver and that driver was just a curmudgeon, didn't care about the fans, wasn't likable. I mean, didn't go the extra mile that Richard Petty went. You hear the stories about he would sign an autograph until the line was gone, right? Every Everybody has a Richard Petty autograph. I have three Richard Petty <laughs> autographs like within my reach, right? Like he was that guy. His personality transcended what could have been a blow for NASCAR's growth. Uh, no one likes malaise. No one likes one winner happening all the time. But you couldn't hate the guy because he was – I mean he was there. He was smiling at you. He was friendly. And man, that – there is no autograph in sports quite like Richard Petty's. And he would sign that until there are no more fans left. And – I think the sport owes a lot to him for that, that he was that kind of gracious character to maybe, maybe downplay the impact that he was waxing the field in a lot of races, really stinking up shows. Didn't care. He was a fan favorite still. And, uh, and I don't know. I, we, we might lose sight of that now, but. We owe him a lot for that. Good stuff. Good perspective on uh, the King Richard Petty and a good way to start off episode 43 of Positive Regression. All right, let's move on. Something we've been doing at the end of every round, a requiem for the four drivers no longer available to win the title. The four drivers eliminated. David, I'll start us off because the one that just missed out was one I thought uh, was easily going to be there, honestly, at the beginning of the race and then midway through the race, and then it all went wrong in stage three. We are talking Joey Logano. He went into Phoenix in position to advance, spent much of the race still in that position, and then uh surprising kind of mystery adjustment, uh maybe a half pound of air pressure. I think they're still trying to figure it out, but it ended up costing him uh, just about everything. Went a lap down and then uh, just could not recover, especially with Denny Hamlin, Hamlin winning. So Joey Logano is out. Two wins this season, 11 top fives, 20 top tens. All those numbers, David, down from 2018 when he was the champion, of course, kind of only one way to go. But no wins since June, just two wins on the season and none since June. And we, we, uh, and when we do these, we try to prescribe a fix for 2020. And, uh, you know, I was looking at all his numbers, David, and right, Amy's fifth in points. So they're not going to be that bad. But when it comes to trying to make it to that level of Homestead, I mean, they're kind of surprisingly mediocre. You know, they're, they're, it's not a huge surprise. He's not amongst the top four. Uh, he's just below that core group in, in really almost every category, but mediocre won't get you there. His production this year, David, took a big hit. Again, he's coming off a championship season. Uh, maybe some regression there, if you will. It's hard to, I guess it's hard to maintain that level of performance, but his production numbers took a big hit. And if anything, I'd say for 2020, just needs to be faster and needs to have a better playoff. He had a quiet, um, a, a playoff where the stats weren't there. A lot of races, they had to rebound and had a lot of trouble in a lot of races and probably got better finishes than they deserved, at least speed wise, you know, a testament to the team and the bounce back and everything. But the playoff, just not not good enough when you're at the championship level and trying to make it to Homestead. And that's ultimately what cost Joey Logano this year. Yeah, and uh, a bit of irony because we remember how Brad Keselowski uh, just you know, whiffed at uh, 
in Kansas. Yeah. Um, surprising. In the, in the elimination race. Uh, it, it was, it was that late race fade, right? And the same thing happens to Joey Logano. Well, I mean, the Penske crew chiefs, if they have a strength, it is that for the whole of the season, they get faster as races progress. So in this one instance, this was a fluke. This was completely atypical to what Penske does, to what Joey Logano's team does. Um, I've hit Todd Gordon hard in the past. I'll stick up for him here. It doesn't usually go that way. So that's probably why they're scratching their heads they probably thought they were in a really good position. I, there was a point I thought he's he's probably going to win this thing. I, I mean, I, I, Sunday. So you're you're right. There were more holes this year than last year. There was some improvement. Uh, he's never been a more efficient passer. Uh, so we see growth in Joey Logano's peripheral statistics. That means growth as the driver and. The hit on uh, on his peer um, kind of sets him up for some positive regression to the mean in 2020. It, it would make a lot of sense that we, he would have just a bounce back year in terms of results getting. Um, there, there, you're right that there are some things to fix. I think things will just naturally be better as well. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to find too many flaws in, in a guy that's fifth in points and just was a few positions away from Homestead, but that's what we got to do. No longer there for going for Homestead. So we will see you next year, Joey Logano. Next up for David, Chase Elliott. Okay, so I'm going to do something that a podcaster shouldn't do uh, and feels very much like an ego stroke, but I'm going to read my Chase Elliott capsule <laughs> from uh, January 4th of this year on motorsportsanalytics.com. It was when I uh, brought out the uh, the peer projections for this season. At that point, I wrote, the average NASCAR driver doesn't surpass 1.0 peer until his 24th birthday. Elliott, who pocketed peers greater than 2.0 in both his age 21 and age 22 seasons, is not the average driver, but we can ascertain from the typical career arc he's due for a major leap in 2020. In the meantime, regression is the expectation after a three-win campaign, though it'd be negligible. A change in the win total would most likely reflect significant improvement in Hendrick equipment, not necessarily a step forward in the budding star's career. Well, look, I, I know when we deal with averages, and certainly averages when we're talking about the driver aging curve, some of our points may seem too picayune for worry. But in this case, everything that I thought was going to happen with Chase held up. This was never going to be his leap year. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, but it will. Uh, on average, NASCAR drivers age 24 to 25, the switch flips, right? And, and things start to get better, but there was a little bit of regression. Everything stayed the same in terms of wins. He got his three wins. The speed difference, his speed ranking, average speed ranking last year was 8.97. This year it's 9.82. It's within a position, not that big of a change. What did change was the races that did not contain wins. They were worse. At one point, Elliott was in jeopardy of doubling last year's crash rate. That likely won't come to fruition at Homestead. Uh, it still could, I suppose. But, Alan, my fix for 2020 is, one, to let nature take its course, but two, Let's address the obvious and fix the restarts uh, because that is, if we're going to see any kind of growth, it's probably going to be from that precise spot on his statistical profile. He ranks 12th in preferred groove retention, and he ranks 15th in non-preferred groove retention. And considering his stature, and he was in the round of eight, right? So, I mean, he, theoretically, he's one of the eight best drivers in NASCAR. He shouldn't be having restarts this bad. Now, his late race restarting was great. Uh, in 10 preferred groove attempts, he defended position on nine of them for a gain of 15 spots. And that is good. But the restarts early in the race dictate where you restart from later in the race. And if he ever wants to capitalize on whatever he and Alan Gustafson are making to their car to do well, it would benefit him to be higher in the running order. So all of these good things would then become 
defending a top five position and competing for wins versus just trying to creep out a top five finish. That's going to be the big change. That's the fix. I do think sunnier days are ahead for Chase Elliott. Maybe big things in 2020 for the fan favorite, Chase Elliott. But we'll have to wait till next year. <laughs> next up, uh, we lost Ryan Blaney out of the playoff. David, he was right there uh, after after a long race, you know, then being in around the in and around the top ten, he was on the front row for, to potentially steal one, but just didn't have the car out there in Phoenix, so he does not move on uh, for the season. He got the one win in Talladega, eleven top fives, eighteen top tens. All improvements on the year before, and he had a great jump in production for himself. So overall, for Blaney fans, they should be happy with what they saw in terms of the improvement. And David, in doing the research, I didn't realize this, Ryan Blaney this year, a phenomenal restarter in terms of defending and or gaining positions from the preferred group, the non-preferred group, the red zone. Ryan Blaney was at the top in nearly every category that you have for restart statistics. So kudos to him for, especially in this era of this new package and stage racing, the way to gain positions is being a good restarter. So given all that, you have to look at the negative. David, my fix for 2020 for Ryan Blaney is better decision-making from the pit box. Because when you look at during green flag pit cycles, Ryan Blaney dropped 140 positions this season. Listen to that again. 140 positions dropped across the normal tracks. Not, no, don't, that, that's not including, uh, road courses and not including the super speedways. It got worse after that. So again, 140 positions across, let's call them the normal tracks. That's double the next worst driver. So the decisions being made during green flag pick cycles, from pit road are costing him a ton of positions and kind of negating a lot of the talent that he has on those restarts. Ninth fastest car overall. Again, if you improve that, you can take advantage of what he has, his abilities as a restarter needs to get up there and lead more laps. That's hard to do if you're just hemorrhaging positions, David. So that would be my fix for 2020. Yeah. I, and I agree with all of that just as a, as a restarter. And I don't know that he gets enough credit for this, but Ryan Blaney, uh, just from a talent perspective, is really tailor-made for modern-day NASCAR. Short runs, he excels. He he is phenomenal. The numbers are great. The long runs uh, are where things need to improve. He is slowly improving as a straightforward long-run passer, just in terms of efficiency. But, yeah, if you're hanging him out to dry uh, on long green flag runs – that's troublesome, and you are taking away from him uh, the thing that he does well. Similar to, to Chase Elliott, if you're deeper in the running order, doing what you do well on restarts and specifically late restarts, it matters a lot less. So stage one, stage two, the long runs, that has to be a focus if they're going to turn all of this talent that we can measure into tangible results. All right. Wait till next year for Ryan Blaney, but there's a lot, a lot of good there to, uh, to, to hang your hat on if you're a Ryan Blaney fan. Uh, last but not least, we lost Kyle Larson, David. Well, we have talked about Larson's year. It was a sluggish start, but, uh, right before summer, he regained, uh, his restarting prowess, adjusted his passing ability, and his numbers since then have been solid. On the whole, though, this is the worst he's ranked in peer since 2015. I, I would expect a bounce back in that number, but you, you don't know for sure. Um, I will speak to one positive. Again, this guy does not get enough credit, but Chad Johnston, he is probably hamstrung on what he can do for top-end speed. Chip Ganassi Racing does not have as deep a resources uh, as some of their competitors. But Chad Johnson, an excellent strategist, 69% retention on the whole for a 23-position gain this season on green flag pit stops, 67% retention when they pit from a top five spot. That is important. That is the best 
percentage in the series. The series wide rate for that, by the way, is 46%. Wow. So they are much better, uh, than the cars running around them in doing that. That is a very tough thing to do. Very tough to defend a top five position. Uh, my fix for them for 2020 is they need more of a point buffer for themselves going into the playoffs. And that begins with cutting down on crashing. And that is crashing in practice. That is crashing in the race. Kyle Larson has the second highest crash rate right now in the Cup Series. And when that happens, you won't fully take advantage of a car for the majority of the summer ranked as the second fastest car in the series. But when you crash in practice, you're going to a backup and you're pretty much out of it for first stage points. Second stage points are still possible, but you still have room to make up. He's a good passer, but that's a tough ask. To emerge winless before the playoffs was not good for them. And that is something that Larson can correct himself. If there is less crashing, there is more competing for wins. There are more points on the board. So he would be in a better position. Look, this was the furthest to chip Ganassi racing team has gone in the playoffs. If I'm not mistaken, that could have been at the very least a nicer cushion because he had a good run at Phoenix that hardly anyone is talking about. That could have been just a, an easy breezy day for him and he's on to Homestead, but that didn't come to pass. So Kyle Larson cut down on the crashing because there is a lot going right there for that number 42 team. Yeah. And he had a good run at Martinsville, you know, a track that he would call a weakness, I think. And, you know, in the playoff race at Martinsville. So that was a positive. So some positives there for the 42. You're right. Just got to need that points buffer. Um, who, who knows what, what difference that could have made. So we've, uh, those four drivers are out. That was our requiem for their seasons and what they need to fix in 2020. David, that means. The championship four is set for Homestead, and that's what we're going to preview now. we got a massive preview coming up for you. With those four drivers out, that means who is left? Denny Hamlin, who won. Martin Truex Jr., who's been waiting around a few weeks for this. Kevin Harvick, who won in Texas. And, of course, Kyle Busch, the one driver to point his way in. And let's just pat ourselves on the back, David. I want to throw this in because NBC was nice enough to point out that the average age of the championship four drivers is 38.5 years old. You round that up to 39 years old, David. And I want to give you a round of applause for being the person who introduced the 39-year-old uh, driver, if you will, <laughs> into my life. <laughs> Uh, just pointing out that your statistical peak, the performance comes at age 39. It's pretty cool how it worked out. Isn't that funny? Right. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, I mean, what, uh, what, what were the odds of that? Can, can someone quantify that one for me? But I mean, look, I, I think that the championship four consists of four drivers by an array of metrics, um, we can look at their win totals. We can look at whether they had a dominant portion of the season. We can look at their production ratings because this is first through fourth in that regard. This is a quality, quality set of drivers battling out for a championship. And I know that the playoff format is polarizing and guarantees mm, nothing for, <laughs> for drivers that have good regular seasons. But I'd be hard-pressed to think that there's anybody bemoaning the fact that this – that there's somebody that was left out. These are the four drivers of 2019. Like when I think back to this season, these are the four guys that I'm going to remember just different things for, that things that occurred. Um, it, it's certainly these four. I, I, I mean just as a neutral observer – this race has all the goods. I'm excited to watch. I genuinely do not know what to expect or what would happen, but I'm uh, willing to uh, willing to take some guesses with you. Yeah, let's do it. And because, look, this whole season, the new package, first time we're going to be there at Homestead. Homestead, in terms of a venue, has delivered, I think, in the past few years as being a track that – uh, can offer a good race. We'll get to that later. But a lot of the season has been the talk of track position. You need to be out front. You need to have it. It makes it life a lot easier. So let's talk about those pathways to track position. Uh, there's qualifying, restarts, passing, the strategy you can come up with. Let, let's start at the top, David. It's going to start 
Everyone's going to go out there and practice and then first qualify. The best pathway to track position starts with a good qualifying position. Uh, how, how would you break that down in terms of uh, who's going to put down a good lap? So, I, I, look, I think the uh, the bullseye's on Kevin Harvick, um, probably for good reason, right? He's got, what, six poles that leads the series. Uh, he also has the best average starting position in the series. That's not a shock. That's what Stuart Haas seems to do well. Of the top four average starting positions, uh, three of them are Stuart Haas drivers. And I'm I'm going to just say... Kevin Harvick sort of needs this poll to happen. Hmm. His passing is below par for the first time in his career. His restarting is good, but not as effective as it was in years past. So it's not the same level of reliability that Rodney Childers would be dealing with. But clean air covers a lot of warts. And the best way to get clean air is to have that good initial track position. And look, if if Harvick can go out on pole day, get the pole, get the first pit stall, that's that's step one for him winning that race or or winning the championship if he isn't winning the race. If he doesn't, that's going to be a significant uphill battle. So this weekend, pole day matters, um, and it changes – the uh the destinies of of these four guys I, I think i think everyone involved is affected if harvick gets the pole that that changes how the start of this race progresses and dare i say if he's not up there in qualifying um that could have negative ramifications for harvick because digging himself out of holes uh has not been his strong suit at all in 2019 Interesting. The Kevin Harvick factor is going to be big throughout the, this whole discussion and just the weekend because you have the three Gibbs and then you have Kevin Harvick, like this lone wolf that's either going to super excel or is going to be inundated by the other three. And I, I'm interested to see how that plays out. So maybe he has the advantage in qualifying. I, I think the numbers point to uh, him being obviously very fast. How about restarts? Because we know how valuable those can be both at the stages and potentially at the end of the race. So I think we're going to be saved a little bit uh, in having restarts dictate too much of the result. The outside groove at Homestead last year was the preferred. It had a 74% combined retention rate compared to the inside's 57%. Those are high numbers. Uh, there is a disparity, though, and there are some landmines that we need to be aware of Third place last year was a 50% retention probability, okay? So that that is a coin toss. That's also where Joey Logano restarted when he forced his way uh, to the lead late in the race and passed Martin Truex. That was an impressive restart, and not every driver is going to be able to accomplish that. Joey was a top 10 restarter from the non-preferred groove last year. He's the number one restarter from the non-preferred groove this year. If it were someone like, I don't know, Denny Hamlin, whose non-preferred groove efforts this year are bad. We're talking 41% retention rate bad. Uh, so bad that that was what made their late race Phoenix call so impactful is they didn't want Denny Hamlin in the non-preferred groove. Give him the lead, make him dictate the restart, but the non-preferred groove, we're talking about well over a 40% chance that he even keeps his spot. Um, that's going to matter at some point. And then the spot behind that, uh, P5, fifth place, 33% probability uh, for um, for its occupants last year. That inside line could be tricky. Uh, we have not seen how restarts pan out at Homestead with this rules package. I'll wager that the, the groove preference is still true, but how the inside line is impacted, keep watch of it early because that could affect things late if we're seeing cars just unable to even defend a spot, much less get a get a run on a competitor for another spot. 
Interesting stuff. Uh, if not restarts, I have, you know, I think of the short run, you know, off restarts, but we've seen some long runs, uh, especially last year. There were some long runs toward the end of the race, not the very end, but before that uh, at Homestead. Uh, long, long-term passing or long run passing or just passing in general. Anyone stand out with an advantage? Well, okay, so this is where, uh, you know, I go to this being a pretty strong four. Only one of the four drivers isn't a plus passer on a moderate 1.5-mile track this season, and that is Kyle Busch, hmm. who's actually one of the best passers overall this year. Kind of odd. Um, but look, this is a talent passing, efficient passing, that twice in the last three years meant everything at Homestead. In 2016 and 2018, the best passer in the race won the race and won the championship. If you're able to maneuver on long runs, if you're able to maybe get up higher and make the high line work before uh, nightfall comes, certainly, then look, I mean, you can make a lot of headway just in terms of track position. And two out of the last three years, it rewarded the best passer with everything, all the spoils. So look, a, a good car, the ability to pass and the efficient maneuvering could mean a championship. Yeah. And I'm looking at the stats now, just last year, I mean, three long runs of 48 laps or more, another one of 27. So this is, uh, I mean, just looking at last year anyway, uh, certainly something you have to plan for and potentially be good at and maybe rewarding. Now, uh, we, we, I think we can quantify, you know, qualifying restarts, passing. We can look at those numbers. What, what can strategy tell you on those long runs in terms of the, the strategy calls? We, we mentioned Ryan Blaney before, how sometimes poor calls can cost you many positions. When you look at the crew chiefs, the people making decisions, what, what do you deduce from potential strategy during this race? There is a lot going on at Homestead just from a strategy perspective, which is why it's a, it's a great race for a finale. Looking into last year's lap times on old tires, we saw fall off in times of over two seconds. And it is possible that early in the race, when the sun is still out, that that fall off increases to three and a half seconds. And there might even be an extreme case of a four second fall off. Managing tires will be crucial. We don't know for sure how the faster corner speeds will impact what we learned last year, but we can guess that crew chiefs will go ahead and build strategy around tires. And to that end, I expect short pitting to be wide open. We might also see the inverse. One thing that we missed last year, we didn't see it, a caution came out, was the fate of Adam Stevens's long pitting strategy on behalf of Kyle Bush, they were in the process of long pitting, and I mean very aggressive stuff here. They had 15 laps on Joey Logano's new set of tires when that final caution flag came out. Stevens's plan was to slap on a new set of tires under green and just try to let Kyle Bush cruise out with the win. It was a calculated risk, but they didn't get their chance to realize the effort and see whether it worked. So you can see uh, pretty much everything is going to be on the table from a strategy perspective, and that could be an equalizer if all else fails. Speed, passing, restarts aren't getting the job done. Then this race gets into the crew chief's hands. And what I don't know how much will factor in, and I'll, I'll get your perspective on it, no stage points in this race, so there's no... There's no necessity, there's no necessity, right, to be there at the end of every stage or plan for that. I don't know how much that changes potential strategy, you know, in terms of back timing from the end of the race, but no stage points, uh, has, I mean, we know they factor in when they count. I don't know how much that changes the potential strategy, but at least it takes that factor out of Sunday's race. Oh, it's going to be old school, baby. I mean, that, this is, they are, they are calling a race to win the race. And I think that's the assumption. I mean, I, was it maybe in the middle of the year I said this might be the first year where the Homestead winner isn't in the championship for? I don't know. That still might be the case just because of the volatility 
of uh, the moderate 1.5 mile tracks this year. But these four crew chiefs, they, they are calling, assuming that they have to win the race in order to win the championship. And if there's no stage points in the way, then a lot of options are on the table. I mean, we're, we're going to see calls that we haven't seen because stage points is this directive that has to happen. Um, but now it's, you know, four crew chiefs that are completely unfettered. All right. We've covered all the pathways to track position. So let's just talk straight up amongst the four. Is there an underdog? Now, what what I like is everybody has won there, right? This is the first time that we're going to Homestead where every, each one of the drivers does have a win at Homestead, Denny Hamlin in 2013. So what do you look at? Do you look at recent uh, speed or, you know, recent numbers? Do you look at season-long numbers? Because uh, I saw on your, your central speed rankings, David, uh, the 11 of Denny Hamlin vaulted itself to the fastest car pound for pound in the playoffs. It's now the 11 car after that domination out in Phoenix. But overall, on the mile and a halfers, it's the four car. It's uh, it's Kevin Harvick. So, w- what are you looking at if you're determining if is there an underdog? Recent stuff, season long. What do you look at? That is a great question. And 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 honestly, it it sounds bad to just focus on playoff performance. In other sports, it's too often perceived as momentum. But in NASCAR, uh, a spike in performance could mean that a team has figured something out. And if there was a previously good team that appears to no longer have anything figured out, then that can create an underdog. And I think that's why Kyle Busch is weirdly an underdog in this race. I, I mean, I, I guess just by the numbers individually, if, if I were just to break it down, passing, restarting, everything else, maybe Kevin Harvick can be argued for this just by the numbers. But Kyle Busch ranks sixth in playoff speed. The other three rank first through third. Busch ranks 13th specifically in the fourth quarter of playoff races. And when we detail the good that Busch has accomplished this season – this is the most efficient we've ever seen him as a passer, but we understand that all of what we saw at its most impactful came earlier in the season when he was winning races and Martin Truex and Denny Hamlin weren't this good. They were figuring out new teams and new crew chiefs, but the worm has turned and Alan, I can't unsee this. I can't pretend that Truex and Hamlin didn't come into their own, both drivers and their teams. And look, Kevin Harvick's speed, it did waver, but it never really left its perch. And his fourth quarter playoff speed ranked second. I'd be terrified if Harvick got hold of clean (laughs) air at any point in the final stage. And I don't know that I feel that way about Kyle Busch because their record of working to get their car faster during playoff races this year, frankly, stinks. So uh, could could all that go away in one race? It's a winner-take-all event, and could, by chance, they be holding something back? Could they have prepared for Homestead long ago? Of course. But going by what we've seen from them in the nine playoff races, these these were the nine races that NASCAR decided are the most important of the year, the 18 team didn't really cut it at all and and certainly didn't do anything to warrant the kind of trust that would put them above Harvick and Hamlin and Truex right now. It's a, This isn't a momentum thing. This is a real breathing thing that occurred during the playoffs that these three teams have something figured out. The 18 team? There's no evidence that they have anything figured out, and if they're going to ever prove us wrong, it's going to be this Sunday, but I don't know how that happens. Yeah, and as always, I appreciate your statistical look at it, you know, with using your head as I, I'm trying to learn more and more to do when, when looking at this stuff. But just from uh, the 30,000-foot view, in terms of attitude, David, a lot of people have talked about this with Kyle Bush. We're not really that type of podcast, but when – in terms of passing and his frustrations, you know, why do I wonder if he can, you know, if he's in traffic, if he can go up and pass cars 
It's because he says he can't, right? I mean, it's coming directly from him. He's the one that talks so much about the frustration. These cars can't pass. I can't get past anybody. I get up to the front and he just can't get to the lead. So I'm just going by his evidence. You know what I mean? When I, when I, if I'm going to worry about him, I'm worrying because I feel like he's telling me to worry that for some reason, he just can't get up there and get and do it when he may not have the car with the most elite speed. So for that reason, I agree with you as well that if there is an underdog, it may have to be Kyle Busch, which is crazy. Yeah, so crazy. I mean, it, it, when he was winning Xfinity races every week and just people thought it was a foregone conclusion that he's the winner, and and when it clicked in the Cup Series, we never thought we'd be in the situation where mm. Kyle Busch is an underdog for anything, right? So it's just a it's a weird position. Of course, he can go out there and prove what all of his numbers suggested were incorrect. Um, but that, that's kind of where you get me is, okay, that absolutely could happen, but I need to be told how that could happen because right now I don't see that pathway for him. Um, and, and so that's why he's my underdog pick. All right. We mentioned it before. Uh, there were some long runs last year. So if this race ends on a long run, uh, who wins? Um, again, I, I think you've laid the case out perfect for Kevin Harvick. That's what I was going to go with because, uh, maybe I'm being naive, but I was just going to base it on speed. So, you know, year long speed, especially at a t- track like this, I'm going with the four car on a long run, especially if he has clean air, as you laid out, uh, how dangerous that could be. So it, am I just being naive basing it sheer off speed, but on a long run? Um, no, I mean, I, I like how you came to that answer. I, however, am going to pick the guy that beat Kevin Harvick on a long run at Las Vegas, and that is Martin Truex. I, I think Cole Pern's natural inclination is to bet the car setup on a race heavy on long runs. And look, that wasn't the case last year. They've been bitten in the past, but Truex is averaging a finish in races with no late race restarts of 6.11, and that is the best such number in the series. And we've talked before about when Martin Truex uh, wins, it's typically a boring race or or I don't know, maybe the flip of that is if there's a boring race, Martin Truex seems to win it, but this that would be the kind of race where he'd flourish. Yeah, of course. That that's that's my long run choice. Uh Martin Truex Cole Pern, uh in a in a in a heavy dose of long runs at Homestead. All right, let's flip it because uh, if it ends on a short run like it did last year, uh who gets the advantage? I oddly am going to go with Truex because I don't think well, first of all, this is again the head and the heart argument. I don't think they make the same mistake again last year and get beat on a short run. And I I like his restart numbers this year combined with the good passing numbers he has on tracks like Homestead, the moderate mile and a halfers, you know, good passing numbers, good restart numbers and just the maybe learning from last year that this can end on a short run. I think the 19 is in position this year to do it. I I actually, yeah, I, I mean, I like that assessment a lot. My only concern is that what if the good passer can't pass? What, what if, what if the big spoiler throws things awry? What if the limited horsepower messes the dynamic up that we, we have become accustomed to at Homestead? Um, and in that end, I like the team that just seems to get good track position at the end of the races, and that's Denny Hamlin. And again, I'm going to point to the same metric. His average finish in races with at least one late race restart is 8.2, and that is the best in the series. Better by hmm. three positions than the next closest playoff driver, and that is Kyle Busch, and we just spent a whole segment bashing Kyle Busch. So I'm going, <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stick with Hamlin in a short run scenario. And uh, I don't know. I mean, if it's, if it's anything in between, I guess we haven't really focused on intermediate runs. I think that's where the hell breaks loose. We have made the case, I think for just about every driver, uh, good and bad, right? Weaknesses and strengths. And I think that really says something about the four that will battle for the title. I think that's really cool. And for the final time this year, what do we want to see? David, I'll let you go first. We ask it every week. What do you want to see at Homestead when they crown a champion? I want to see a fair fight. Uh, I 
I, I, I don't want to see an early mechanical failure or a cut tire or a weird crash. I don't want to see the things that uh, just kill the progression of an otherwise straightforward race. Last year, the four playoff drivers lined up one through four on the final restart. And this isn't to say that I want a final restart, but I do want all four teams at their best, no asterisk, a believable, hard-fought victory because I'm of the mind, like you said, we've made the case for all four of these guys. I'm of the mind that the winner of Homestead is the deserving champion. Good stuff. Um, if you remember earlier this year, we did a, a whole podcast on what, what makes a good race. And my standard for what makes a good race was last year's Homestead race. And I liked it. And I, I used that example because of the parody that we saw. And so I'm just being greedy. I want to see it again, David. Uh, as I said, this was, that was the standard for my, what is a good race moment. All the drivers last year, led at least 20 laps. All four drivers in the championship four led 20 laps last year or more in at Homestead. Um, this is the first time ever all four drivers have won at Homestead before. So I want to see them all go out there and each have a shot at winning and, and show us that, you know, 20 plus laps led. Uh, last year's race ended with a, I think a 15 lap run to the end, which Joey Logano used that short run speed to win a title. Let's extend that last run, maybe to uh, say 23 to 25 laps to get really specific on you guys. That's what I want to see. I want to see all the drivers lead laps, and I want a 23-lap run to end this race just to see what happens. I don't so, uh, I don't know how this race is going to break, and I'm I'm anxious to find out how because I'm I'm genuinely curious as to what teams are bringing this weekend. I I, I we we may witness a crew chief completely miss a setup just because the race broke in a manner that went against his thinking. And I, I want to understand the thinking that is uh, so fascinating to me. There are so many moving parts. A, a champion isn't just competing against three primary contenders in a field of 38 drivers, but they're competing against just the flow of the race itself. And it's so tough to get that right. Um, so that, look, we're going to be back next week. We're going to detail who got it right and who missed, I'm sure. And I just can't wait to get to Sunday to, to see how, how all that transpires. Yeah, man, we'll be, uh, we'll be with it every step of the way. And so make sure you, uh, listen to our review of the, the Homestead race, uh, next week on, uh, on pos- positive regression. So, uh, massive, massive Homestead preview. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, we're almost a full season in, right? Please leave us a rating or review. Uh, reading some of those and just gaining listeners and gaining feedback throughout the year has just been awesome. It's been very rewarding. Uh, I, I hope it goes both ways. I hope you enjoy what uh, what we're giving you. So any help in spreading the word on this podcast, it, all that stuff helps us gain visibility. It's all very much appreciated. If you've got any questions, uh, we're not going anywhere. We want to answer them on this podcast. Reach out on Twitter, posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, the end of the season is almost here, so I know that means you must be busy. What do you got working? There is a lot happening this week, uh, as you'd expect, on The Athletic, deep dives into all four of the championship for uh, Harvick and Truex and Hamlin and Bush. And on Friday morning, there will be a tale of the tape of sorts, uh, sizing up each driver in one column and it might and i'm still working on it but it will amount to something like a best passer a best restarter the least frequent crasher and a host of other superlatives so be on the lookout for that and on motorsportsanalytics.com chris mitchell's prediction model will post the most likely homestead outcome Uh, and i will return with an xfinity series race preview Last week's cheat sheet correctly identified Justin Allgaier's recent run of form is winnable. This week is all about the four drivers competing for the Xfinity Series title on Saturday. 
Um, all of that plus probably some surprises. I don't know. Lots of stuff though. So I hope you uh, are able to get to it all. Follow me on Twitter at David Smith MA. So you're not uh, missing any of that. Yeah, that cheat sheet every week for the Xfinity series is actually really informative. So, uh, not that I was expecting any less, but I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised how much smarter it made me before watching the race. And I was like, that's pretty cool. So make sure you check that out. Uh, we were, we are race hubbing all week. Um, we, let's see, I'm trying to think of, uh, well, all the stuff I got going. Uh, again, this is post on Thursday. So if you're listening right now, you're a subscriber. That's awesome. Make sure you watch race hub tonight because it is media day from Miami. Um, you know, the last time before the track, we get to talk to all the drivers and it's always a big event. So I'll be on race hub tonight from Miami as we talk to the championship four. And then it is the truck race on Friday night, but they will crown a champion. Good field of four. We got going there. Stuart Friesen coming off, uh, the win in Phoenix. And I think that race is pretty wide open as well. So make sure you watch that on FS1. We'll crown a champion there. And then uh, just watch NASCAR all weekend. Race day, a big 90-minute edition of race day on FS1 on Sunday. Your race day starts with race day at 11.30 a.m. It's going to be a fun, fun Sunday. A lot of stuff, a lot of content on that uh, 90-minute show on FS1 uh, coming up on Sunday. So let, let's let's all do it together. It is the final race of the season, and uh, I think we're going to have an exciting weekend, David. I think so too. Um, look, I mean, we're, we got into this because we enjoy racing. This is it. This is uh, this is the the day where we decide the year's champion. It's a great track, good drivers. Tune in, enjoy it. Uh, if you have friends that aren't NASCAR fans, grab them by the shoulder, bring them in, teach them some things. And, uh, and create a new fan because this is, uh, this is the best we've got to offer. So looking forward to it. I'm hoping it's a truly positive experience. Amen to that. And thank you all for listening. Let's, uh, let's have a great weekend all together and we'll be back next week. This is Positive Aggression, a motorsports analytics podcast. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.